Uh, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Our passage for today is Matthew 21, 18 to 22. Uh, I'm, let's begin our time today by reading the passage together. Um, as you're turning there, let me just give you a brief review before we read. Uh, we're currently studying the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, a week known as Passion Week. Jesus says, was welcomed into Jerusalem on Sunday to the hills of Hosanna, to the son of David. He proceeded to go straight to the temple and cleanse it on Monday. Uh, In the passage this morning, it is now Tuesday. We are three days away from Jesus' crucifixion on Friday. And now time is going to slow down. Uh, We've covered the first two days of Passion Week over two consecutive Sundays. We'll be on Tuesday of Passion Week all the way through the end of chapter 25. Meaning that we'll be here for the next several months. The events of Tuesday actually will make up the bulk of the time that we have remaining in Matthew. Keep this in mind, by the way. Matthew tells us more about what happened on Tuesday of Passion Week than he actually does about Friday. There is more recorded about this exchange that's about to happen in the temple and Jesus' response to it on the Mount of Olives than there is about Jesus' death on the cross. There's very little written about Wednesday. We don't know much at all about what happened on Wednesday at Passion Week. After Tuesday is over, Matthew more or less picks up on Thursday evening. He spends about one chapter discussing the Last Supper and Jesus' betrayal and arrest. In chapter 27, Jesus is tried, crucified, and buried. Chapter 28, he rises again. Now, of course, Matthew didn't put chapter markings in this gospel. That was added later, so this is a little bit arbitrary. But that's two chapters covering Thursday and Friday of Passion Week, and one chapter covering the resurrection and the events that followed. By comparison, Tuesday spans four and a half chapters. That's significant. It's fair to say that Tuesday of Passion Week is actually the most eventful day of Jesus' ministry in Matthew's Gospel. Now, don't confuse me by that. I'm not saying that it's the most important. I said it's the most eventful. There are more happenings occurring here than at any other day in this Gospel. And that should tell you something of the significance of this day for Matthew and his readers. You know, John... Uh, He focuses on Thursday, on the Last Supper in his Gospel. For Matthew, Tuesday is the big deal. And the events of today's passage kick it off. So let's go ahead and read that passage together once again. That's Matthew 21, 18-22. The most eventful day in Matthew's Gospel begins like this. In the morning, as as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. The power of God is a two-edged sword. God can use it both to bless and to curse, to give life or to kill, to build up or destroy. With that power, God 
rained a series of plagues down on the Egyptians, the like of which the world has never seen. And with it, he freed and protected his people from bondage to the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. This is why I say that it's a two-edged sword. The power of God can be one of the most comforting thoughts in Scripture, or it can be the most terrifying. It all depends on the kind of relationship that a person enjoys with God. David could reflect on God's power and the thought that he could never escape it and take comfort, writing in Psalm 139, 5-10, You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall uphold me. David knew and feared the Lord, and for this reason he took great comfort in the power of God. For him, God's power meant that there was no place where he was not secure, no place where he was not safe. For him, he was always in the hand of God. And as you know, no one can rob God. No one can seize what is in his grasp. The wicked, however, experience terror at the very same thought that gives comfort to David. Just as no one can seize what is in God's hand, so also no one can deliver a person from God's hand once it's set against them in judgment. And so the wicked, they cry out in terror at the thought that there's nowhere they can flee to escape the wrath of God. In fact, in Revelation 6, the kings and the great ones of the earth even call on the mountains and the rocks to crush them in desperate hope for some kind of refuge from God, saying, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Salvation or judgment. The power of God can be worked out for either purpose, and no one has the power to stop it once it's set in motion. It says, God says in Isaiah 43, 11-13, as He promises to both discipline And then bless Israel after that discipline is over. He says, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God, and henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Of course, the believer no longer must fear the wrath of God. Christ's blood covers their sin. His righteousness is applied to them by faith. And that God now looks at them as His adopted son or daughter. They have a relationship with Him. And this means that God, His power, works out for their good always. Always. It says, Paul writes in Romans 8, 28-39, he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely or graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul says, look, God has given His Son to die for our sins. He has given us His most cherished possession, His very own Son, His sinless, perfect Son, to die for our sins. And through this sacrifice, He has justified us in His sight. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So who's going to bring a charge against us? Who is able to separate us from the love of God? What can separate us from the love of God? Can tribulation or distress or even persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And Paul answers this question in verse 37, starting in verse 37, saying, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all the creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says that we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God because Christ died for our sins. We are accepted by God because Jesus has offered up a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And this means, going back to verse 28, the very beginning of this passage, this means that we can now know that all things are going to work together for our good. We don't have to fear the wrath of God. We who are in Christ need no longer fear God's power. That it will be employed against us In order to destroy us. God's love is set on us. He has displayed that love in the gift of His Son. Through that love He has forgiven us. He cleanses us. We are now accepted by Him. So His power will always work out for our good. We have no need to fear it. And yet, yet, this does not mean that God will not sometimes employ that power to inflict pain in our life as Christians and to do so in response to the way that we approach our relationship with Him. As the author of Hebrews exhorts his readers to remain faithful in the face of affliction, he writes this. This is Hebrews 12, 4-11. He says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten The exhortation that addresses you as sons, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord's discipline is the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. He continues saying, It is for discipline that you endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God will inflict pain on the believer, the author of Hebrews notes. But it's not a pain that is absent of His love. Rather, it's an expression of His love. God loves His children, and this means that He wants them to experience the blessing of righteousness. He wants them to be holy. He wants them to take delight in Him. And so if they are in sin, 
If they turn away from God to pursue idols, God in His love will afflict them. He will bring pain into their life. But He will do this not to punish them or destroy them. Rather, He'll do it to correct them, to call them back. That's a sign of His love for us. Just as any loving parent will discipline their children, not to harm them per se, but to teach them, to train them through the pain so that they can experience the joy of a wise and righteous life. So also does God love us. So He will use His power to inflict pain. Even those who are in Christ must realize that God's power can be employed to wound Now the purpose of that wound is not to destroy, but to heal. It's a loving wound. But it's a wound nonetheless. And one of the ways that God does this for the Christian quite often is not so much by inflicting pain as by removing His blessing. It's a kind of passive discipline more than an active one. The individual persists in sin against God. They persist in idolatry. And God disciplines not by what He does, by what He doesn't do. He stops distributing those things that we call gifts until such a time that the believer senses his or her need, comes running back to Him in humility, dependence, and faith. The way the Scripture tends to describe this type of discipline is by saying that God withdraws from a person. Scripture is very clear. God is the source of every good and perfect blessing. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, it says in James 1.17. Scripture, therefore, ties the blessing of God to the presence of God. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore, it says in Psalm 16.11. Likewise, Blessing comes, the scripture explains, when God's face looks toward the believer. That's how it's often described. You see this, for instance, in the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift His countenance upon you and give you peace. That's number 6, 24 to 26. God then withdraws this blessing by turning His face away. You see this in a number of Psalms. Psalm 104, 27-29, for instance, speaks of God's providential care for the animals in the creation by saying, Those, these all look to you and uh, to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. God gives them food and life. And then when He hides His face, they're dismayed and they die. For this reason, the psalmist repeatedly begs God not to hide his face from him. When he's afflicted, he cries out, Psalm 13, 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? In Psalm 44, 23-24, he asks in confusion, he says, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself! Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? And he pleads in Psalms 69, 17, and 18, Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. 
Now, there are several more examples like this in the Old Testament, probably the most significant of which, as regards our passage for this morning, is Psalm 88, 13 to 14. There the psalmist says, But I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes to before you. O Lord, why do you cast away my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? He's calling out to God in prayer, crying out for God to deliver him. And then when deliverance doesn't come, when affliction comes, he asks, why do you cast away my soul? Why have you evicted me from your presence? And he says, why do you hide your face from me? This is one type of discipline that the believer can experience. God will withdraw He doesn't actually abandon the believer. Jesus told his disciples that he would be with them to the end of the age. So God never actually abandons us. And yet it is possible for God to respond to our idolatry by symbolically removing his presence from us. And he does this through the absence of blessing. God wants us to seek his face. And when we fail to do that, when we we turn to idols and said, he will often discipline by withholding His blessing from us until the time should come that we realize our need again and turn to Him in true humility, dependence, and faith. So how can we avoid that? That's the question we should really want to know, right? I mean, we can understand that God's discipline is there for our good, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that we should ever look forward to it, right? I would think that we would all much rather learn the lesson that God desires for us to learn before we need to be corrected, right? After all, if the purpose of discipline is to teach and to train, then it would seem that God wouldn't need to do it if we can learn and apply the lesson before it becomes necessary. How much better would that be, right? To learn before we need correction than to only learn the lesson after the corrective pain has been inflicted. We would all much rather abide in the blessing of God, have Him hear our prayers and answer than for Him to hide His face from us. How can we do that? What causes God to hide His face from His people? And what must we do to prevent that kind of discipline from happening to us? That's the question that Jesus answers for His disciples in today's passage. We're just coming off a passage where Jesus declares judgment. That passage is Matthew twenty-one twelve. To 17, the cleansing of the temple. Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the first time on Sunday to the hails of Hosanna to the son of David. He's welcomed into Jerusalem as the promised Davidic king. And the first thing he does once he enters into Jerusalem is to go to the temple to inspect the nation's worship. The Davidic kings were largely responsible for the direction of the nation's worship. Bad kings led the people into idolatry and sin. Good kings restored the temple and led the people into repentance. Jesus is a good Davidic king. And so he goes to the temple to inspect the spiritual state of the nation as manifested through its worship. And what does he find? He finds money-changing booths where people exchange their foreign currency for the coins needed to pay the annual temple tax. He finds animals for sale right there in the temple so the people can buy their sacrifice and immediately walk over and offer it up to God. Basically, he sees that the temple, the house of the Lord, the place where Yahweh dwelt, which was supposed to be this place where an Israelite could go and reflect on their sin and seek fellowship with God and confession and prayer, 
This house has instead been transformed into a noisy marketplace and a raucous zoo. And so how does he respond? He's enraged. It's apparent by the way that people are coming to God that there is not sincerity in their worship. They are merely coming into the temple to make their sacrifice and be done with it. And they're doing this because they think that if they do this, so long as they do this, God will bless them. In other words, while they are making sacrifices, they are not truly seeking refuge either in the sacrifice or in the God to whom the sacrifice is made. They're seeking it in their works. They're seeking it in their obedience. There's no real interest in God or His law, and that's manifest by the fact that the people apparently do not see the need for the temple to serve as a place of communion and fellowship with God. Jesus is outraged by this hypocrisy. And so he starts turning over the tables and chasing out the buyers and the sellers, all while declaring, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a robber's den. A robber's den is where criminals go for refuge after committing a crime. In Jeremiah 7, God condemns the people for turning his temple into a robber's den by going and committing all sorts of wickedness and sin and only to then come into the temple and make sacrifices, presuming that so long as they make sacrifices, he will protect them. God tells them that this is foolishness. He tells them that that he destroyed Shiloh already because of the people's sin even when He dwelt there, and that He would do the same thing to the temple if the people did not turn from their sin and worship them. Do more than sacrifice, they had to worship Him. Jesus repeats that condemnation here. He rebukes the people for coming to offer sacrifices while rejecting His calls to the nation for genuine repentance. Now, He tells them, judgment is coming. That's what this rebuke in the temple is really about. Jesus cleansed the temple once at the beginning of His ministry. He he preached repentance to Israel for three years after that. And now He comes back and nothing has changed. The people are exactly the same as they've always been. And so now judgment is coming. The crowds may have welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem on Sunday, thinking that the Son of David was about to deliver them from their enemies. But on Monday, He goes into the temple and declares, I'm not going to deliver you. God's presence as manifested in this temple, even my presence here as your king, it's all about to be removed. And it is. Within a week's time, Jesus will be dead and resurrected. And He'll be resurrected with all the authority to judge the earth. But He won't do that right away. He won't reign on the earth as the King of Israel right away. Instead, He'll ascend to the right hand of His Father until the time of Israel's repentance. And in the meantime, Israel will experience judgment. That's what Jesus is going to continue to reveal on Tuesday of Passion Week. He's about to tell the disciples that the temple's coming down. The people will be exiled again. God will essentially remove His presence and blessing from His people. But He won't do this in order to destroy His people. He's going to do it to discipline them. So that's the context of today's passage. It's judgment. It's discipline. God is about to turn His face away from His people. He's about to remove His blessing from them so that they can turn to Him again in true humility, dependence, and faith. How can a person avoid 
that kind of discipline. For that matter, was there anything that Israel could have done to escape all this? Jesus answers this in this episode with the fig tree. This episode can be broken down into two parts. Uh, There's the cursing of the fig tree in verses 18 and 19, and then there's the disciples' response in verses 20 to 22. Uh, Mark lets us know that this event actually occurred over two days. Jesus actually cursed the fig tree on Monday on his way into the temple. He then returned with the disciples on Tuesday to find it withered from the roots up. Of course, that's when the disciples marvel over the feet and ask Jesus to explain it. Matthew, for his part, presents the whole sequence together. We've already noted that he does this several times throughout his gospel. Matthew's concerns with, uh, Matthew is concerned with concepts, not chronology. So he'll freely rearrange events in Jesus' ministry if doing so will set them against the backdrop that best brings out their point. That's what we see here as well. Matthew wants to present this entire episode, the cursing the fig tree, the response with the disciples. He wants to present the whole thing against the backdrop of what Jesus just said in the temple. And when you read the passage in this light, the meaning of the fig tree isn't particularly hard to understand. Jesus is traveling into Jerusalem on Monday morning and he's hungry. Well, as he's traveling, he comes across this fig tree and the fig tree's got its leaves out. When fig trees put their leaves out, it normally means that they're bearing fruit. So Jesus stops buy this tree for a quick bite to eat. But then when he draws closer, he sees that there's no fruit. The tree has the appearance of fruit, but it's actually barren. How does he respond? He curses it. He says, may no fruit ever come from you again. And just like that, the fig tree shrivels up and dies. The disciples walk by the next morning and it's dead like that. Now, you read that story by yourself, and you think, wow, okay, so uh, remind me never to talk to Jesus before he's had his breakfast, right? I mean, I thought I was bad before my coffee, you know? Uh, Jesus is way worse, you know? Like, eat a Snickers, Jesus, because you get kind of grumpy when you're hungry, seriously. Uh, that's That's what this story looks like by itself. It can come across like Jesus is acting petulantly, that he's spiteful, vindictive, capricious. And that's totally out of character with Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus went without food for 40 days in Matthew 4, and he still would not sin. So Jesus can handle a little hunger, right? It just doesn't make sense to read this as some kind of impulsive, frustrated outburst. And it's not. When you set it against its background, you can see that it's not. What this is, this cursing of the fig tree, what this is, is a sign. It is a miraculous wonder intended to communicate a specific point to the disciples. What is that point? Well, it should be obvious in light of everything that transpired Monday in the temple. The fig tree symbolizes Israel. In fact, you remember how I said that God rebukes Israel for turning His temple into a robber's den in Jeremiah 7? Well, in Jeremiah 8, He speaks of their unrepentance, saying, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves have withered. 
And what I have them uh, is has passed, or what I gave them has passed away from them. This is how Israel is often depicted in the Old Testament as a fig tree. So can you get the picture here? Israel is the fig tree. The leaves are their sacrifices and law-keeping, their external righteousness. They have the appearance of fruit, but as to actual fruit, there is none. They give the appearance of worship in faith, but it's all a show. In reality, they're as barren as this fig tree. So Jesus curses this fig tree on the way to the cleansing of the temple as a way of symbolizing the judgment that He's about to declare on the nation. And the next day, Tuesday, the day on which Jesus will predict the destruction of the temple, the disciples see this withered fig tree and they marvel over it. Now, they probably don't understand the meaning of this sign yet. We'll see in a couple of chapters, they don't realize that judgment is coming yet. So they probably don't understand the meaning of the fig tree entirely just yet. But retrospectively, this would make sense why Jesus did this. They would understand later what Jesus was doing when He cursed this tree. They'd get the meaning behind it. For the time being, though, they just simply marvel at the power that Jesus puts on display in this miracle. I mean, this miracle is exactly what I was talking about when I said that the power of God can be used both to bless or to curse to give life or to kill, to build up or destroy. Jesus curses this fig tree, and just like that, it shrivels up and dies. Its life is dependent on the constant blessing of God. And so when God withdraws that blessing, it can't live for another single moment. It's dead. The disciples' minds are blown by this incredible display of power, and so they ask Jesus, how did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answers in verses 21 to 22, saying, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive, if you have faith. Now, this is where I think this passage gets really interesting. And I'll tell you why. There's a couple reasons why. First, this is interesting because the focus in this passage, if you'll notice, the focus in this passage is not the symbolism in this miracle, but the teaching on prayer that follows. That's odd. You have this miracle that's just packed full of theological meaning, but Matthew, he never addresses it. He doesn't explain the miracle. Instead, he focuses entirely on what Jesus has to say about prayer in the aftermath. And then, and then, what Jesus does say about prayer is really just a repeat of what Jesus said about prayer back in chapter 17. That's the second reason why I think verses 21 and 22 are really interesting. They're essentially a repeat of what Jesus taught back in chapter 17. You know what I'm talking about, right? Back in chapter 17, Matthew says that when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, His disciples are there at the foot of the mountain trying to heal a demoniac. And they can't do it. Jesus proceeds to cast the demon out, and when the disciples ask Him why they couldn't do it, Jesus says this, because of your little faith. 
For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. That's a very similar answer to what we have here. Now, there there are some slight differences. Jesus speaks about the relative size of faith in Matthew 17. He doesn't do that here. Here, the miracle seems to be worked out through prayer. There's no mention of prayer in verse 17. But other than that, these passages are more or less the same. They both talk about the disciple being able to do anything if they have faith. Both passages speak of the disciples even ordering a mountain to move and doing it through this faith. They're just very, very similar teachings. That's very curious. Why would Matthew, four chapters after this, basically ignore the meaning of the sign just so he can repeat a lesson that Jesus has already taught in this gospel? The answer, of course, is that uh, Matthew isn't just repeating a lesson. He's not repeating the same lesson. At least not exactly. Yes, the principles that Jesus outlines here are the same that we saw back in chapter 17. The lesson is the same in this sense, but there's a different setting to the lesson in each instance. Jesus is taking the same principles that he applied with the healing of the demoniac, but he's applying it to a different situation. Matthew, on his part, then amplifies this fresh setting through the arrangement of the material. He helps draw the implication of this lesson out by presenting this entire episode after the cleansing of the temple instead of splitting it apart in its chronological sequence. Of course, the basic lesson of this instruction on prayer is that anything is possible for the disciple who uh, comes to God asking in faith. Now, as I explained back in chapter 17, Jesus is not, listen very closely here, He is not writing His disciples a blank check when He issues these statements. That's not his intent, to tell his disciples that if they just wish for something hard enough, anything at all, then God will give it to them. We have plenty of examples in Scripture of people praying for things and praying sincerely and God telling them no. No less than Jesus himself prayed three times that God would remove the cup of his wrath, if it were at all possible. And the answer was essentially, no, it is not possible. So I think it's fair to say that this is not Jesus' point here, to write His disciples a blank check so they can just sort of wish whatever they want into existence. Jesus' point is, firstly, that anything is possible with God. The disciples had the most powerful force in the universe working on their side. There's nothing that He can't do. Jesus uses hyperbole to make this point. He speaks of the disciples casting mountains into the sea. That's Jesus overstating the point in order to make a point. Nothing is impossible for the disciples. That's actually how he ends the lesson in chapter 17. He concludes saying, and nothing will be impossible for you. So that's one point that Jesus is trying to drive home to the disciples. They will be able to do anything. Not necessarily that they will do anything, but that they will be able to do anything. The second is that God, the second thing that Jesus is teaching in this, is that God will work through the disciples' faith. This is important. Faith is not a power. In fact, you go back to chapter 17, Jesus goes out of his way to make the point that it is not the size of the disciples' faith that matters. Faith, even as small as a grain of mustard seed, is sufficient to do the task. 
And the reason for this is because God is the one who will accomplish the disciples' request, not the disciples themselves. It's the object of faith that matters, not the faith itself. Even the tiniest amount of faith is sufficient so long as it's fixed on the right object. So back in chapter 17, Jesus admonishes the disciples over the littleness of their faith when they could not cast out the demon. And here he continues to implore them to have faith and not doubt. God will answer their prayers, but He works in conjunction with their faith. Those two lessons really form the core of this instruction on prayer, both in chapter 17 and then again here in chapter 21. The difference, the difference is the setting. Back in chapter 17, the setting was essentially mission. Jesus had given His disciples authority to cast out demons somewhere along the way. They began apparently to either confuse the source of their authority, thinking that that power came from themselves instead of through Christ, or they began to doubt Jesus' authority to give them this power in light of His predicted suffering and death. Either way, they are on mission when they try to heal this demoniac, and by giving this lesson then, Jesus reinforces the idea that God has granted them everything necessary to accomplish this mission, so long as they come to Him in faith. So what's the setting here in chapter 21? Well, it's as, as I mentioned earlier, it's judgment. It's the cleansing of the temple. It's the cursing of the fig tree. Now let me explain to you how that shades the meaning of this lesson when Jesus places this in relief against God's judgment. Jesus tells the disciples here that whatever they ask in prayer they will receive. But then he conditions this statement with this phrase, if you have faith. The idea is that they must believe for this prayer to be effective. The New American Standard uh, translation uh, even translates this verse, and all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. And right away, I think we can see once again that Jesus is not writing the disciples a blank check. Not even when he says, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. Because he conditions that promise on this point. The disciples must believe. They must come in faith. They have to trust that God will answer their prayer. Mark brings this point out a little more clearly, I think. There Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you, will, you, that you have received it, and it will be yours. That, that's the condition attached to this prayer. The disciples must have confidence that they will receive what they've asked for. They must believe that God will answer their prayer. Now, certainly this is a call to a kind of boldness, right? They're to trust wholeheartedly in the kindness of God towards His children. But I think we're misunderstanding Jesus' point if we think that by this He's saying, so dream big, think of the biggest wish that you could ever ask, and then try really hard To believe that God will do it. Because if you can just muster up the right amount of faith, you can achieve it. Jesus can't mean that. For one, that would contradict passages like James 4, 1 to 3, which say, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not receive, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And then he explains, he says, you do not have 
because you do not ask. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Clearly, God is not going to give us what we ask for if we just believe hard enough, if what we ask for diminishes His glory. No matter how hard we ask for it, He's not going to answer that kind of a prayer. So Jesus can't be saying, you know, dream big and pray hard when He says this because there are clearly limits to the types of prayers that God will answer. And further, whatever He means to say by conditioning the answer to prayer on our faith, He can't mean to say that God's answer to prayer is open-ended so long as we come with the right amount of faith. This is how this passage is sometimes Treated. God is promising to give us whatever we want on the condition that we just believe enough. Kind of like cross your fingers and wish, and God will do it. Basically, you have to muster up the right amount of faith, and if we can do that, if we can just believe hard enough, God will answer. You know, has God, has God ignored your prayers? That's obviously because you didn't supply the right amount of faith. If you only believed more, God would have answered. Jesus can't, he can't mean this. And I say this because he's already told the disciples that the amount of their faith is inconsequential to God's answer to their prayers. The faith of a mustard seed is sufficient to do the task. It's the object of faith that matters, not the faith of the worshiper. It's not the amount of faith that matters, but the presence of faith. A person must have faith, period. And so long as they do, no matter the amount, so long as it's present and fixed on the right object, then it's enough for God to answer. This lesson is a call to boldness, yes. But it's a boldness that is shaped not by the grandness of our dreams or by the size of our faith, but by the faithfulness of our God. That's what it means to have faith and not doubt. It means to believe, to trust. The one who has faith possesses an implicit trust, not only in the power of God, but in His goodness and wisdom as well. Listen, that's going to dramatically alter the kind of prayers that you're going to bring to God if you're coming to Him with this kind of faith. The one who has faith, because they have faith, listen, because they have faith, they don't dictate terms to God. They receive them. They don't come making demands, they come seeking instruction. Now when God tells them what to pray for, they pray for it, and they pray it boldly, trusting that God will answer, because He's promised to answer, and He's good, and He's faithful and true. But outside of that, they come not with demands, but with humility. Seeking to learn God's will and purpose, not dictate it. Again, the prayer that Jesus offered in Gethsemane was, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He didn't condition his prayer in that way because he lacked faith, but because he had it. Jesus so trusted His Father that He didn't come demanding deliverance, but asking for it, all while trusting that if God did not grant it, even then His purposes would be good. 
The Lord's Prayer is another example of this kind of prayer, a prayer in faith. Jesus prefaces this prayer by telling his disciples that they should pray knowing that God knows what they need before they ask him. So how does that kind of prayer come out? Does it start off with this long list of ambitious demands? No, it starts like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's an expression of total submission to the will of God. Now it goes on to make requests, certainly. Daily sustenance, forgiveness, sanctification. But if you pay attention, the disciple asks for these things. He prays for life, forgiveness, for sanctification. He prays for these things, life and relationship with God, because these are all that the disciple needs if God is truly good and wise. Life and relationship with God. When it really comes down to it, the one who has faith is really only going to ask for two basic things. They're going to seek two basic things, fellowship with God and knowledge of His will. They're going to ask to be in fellowship with God because they know that there is blessing in His presence, that He in His wisdom, goodness, and power showers blessing upon His people. And they ask for knowledge of His will because they know that His plans and purposes are always good. So they don't come necessarily to shape God, but to be shaped by Him. And as I say that, I want to be clear. Please hear me out on this. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. By this, I'm not saying that they don't make requests. They'll certainly make requests, definitely. We have many examples of that in the Scripture. But even when they make requests, they don't come out as demands. They come out as, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There's an open-endedness to the request where they're seeking to understand God's will on the matter, not dictate the outcome. And they do this because they always, always believe that God's desired outcomes are the best possible results. So they don't make demands, they make requests, and then they humbly wait for the results. Now the one who has faith will seek these things out boldly, but they will do so not because they believe in the power of faith to bend God's will, but again, because they trust the character of God and God has already promised to grant them these things, life, relationship with Him, knowledge of His will, when they ask and they trust God. So when Jesus conditions this promise, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive with this statement, if you have faith, I think we have to understand he's not writing his disciples a blank check because the one who has faith is naturally going to restrict their requests to those things that God has already promised to the disciple and then seek God's will with humility and the rest. Now that being said, said all of this within the context of the judgment that we've seen take place. Set this promise in relief against the sign of the fig tree. What is it, do you think, that Jesus anticipates his disciples will ask for in light of this judgment? Let me ask it another way. What did Israel just forfeit in the temple? And how did they forfeit it? Was it not the, the, the presence and blessing of God? Isn't that what they forfeited? And was it, lost, uh, was it not lost on the basis of their faithlessness? 
They're coming into the temple and they're offering up sacrifices, but not because they trust God, but rather because they trust in their works, in their own obedience, in their own righteousness. And how does Jesus respond to that? He says, God's not going to protect you. These sacrifices that you're offering up, listen, He won't hear them. He's going to abandon you. He's going to let you fall into judgment. This temple is coming down. Why? Because you have not come to Him in faith. You come doubting. That's what this works-based focus is a demonstration of. It's what any kind of, uh, any kind of plan B attempts at salvation or joy or righteousness is an expression of. The idea is that, you know, we can't really trust God. Like, I, 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 I believe in Him, I trust Him, but I don't entirely trust Him. So we better have a backup plan to manage this situation in case He fails. That's what Israel was revealing as they tried to manage the situation with their obedience. They didn't really trust God. They doubted. God's not pleased with that. He's never been pleased with that. Back in Isaiah's day, when Judah was under threat from the Assyrians, they sought to make an alliance with Egypt to deliver them from the hands of the Assyrians while worshiping God as their protector and deliverer. And do you know what God said to them then? when they tried to worship God while seeking help from Egypt? He said this, Isaiah 29, 13-14, says, Because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. God says, because you act, Israel, because you act like you fear me, and yet do not fear me in your heart, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to blind you. I'm going to withdraw my blessing from you. I'm going to astound you with my power and judgment to the degree that you're humbled. And then, God goes on to say in the rest of the passage, then I will deliver you. God's never been pleased with those who hedge their bets and their relationship with Him. Because such actions do not come from faith, and they therefore diminish God's glory. Listen, God saves through faith, because when a person depends wholly on God for their salvation, and when God then saves, He gets all the glory for it. So he has likewise always rejected those who come in doubt that is expressed in a divided devotion. It says it says in James 1, 5-8, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Listen, that's a promise, right? That's one very much like what we see here in Matthew 21. But James goes on to say, Let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts... Is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. God will not respond to those whose devotion, whose hope is divided, because that kind of faith does not bring Him glory. So if the one who comes like this is His child, if they come to Him with this divided faith, this split devotion... He will demonstrate His love for them by withdrawing, by disciplining them for their idolatry until they're made desperate. And then, 
when they're humbled to the point that they realize their need for Him again. And they're relying entirely on Him for their salvation again. He'll hear, answer, and deliver. Go through your Bible. This is the consistent testimony of Scripture all the way from the beginning to the end. So understand the point that Jesus is making here. When Jesus says, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Understand that on one hand, this is an explanation for the fig tree. It explains why judgment is about to come upon Israel. They came to God in prayer and they asked for deliverance and for protection, but they came in doubt. They came with a divided devotion. And so God will not hear them. This is why everything that's about to happen to Israel is going to happen. That's what this lesson is on one hand. It explains the temple cleansing and the cursing of the fig tree. God is turning His face away from Israel. He will not hear their prayers because they did not seek Him out in faith. So that's one thing that this teaches. It explains the fig tree. On the other hand, this lesson serves as instruction, uh, even as warning for Jesus' disciples. Again, Jesus isn't writing the disciples a blank check. He's telling them, listen, God will hear you and grant you everything that you need. He will protect you. He will provide for you. He will bless you with every good and perfect gift that you need. But you cannot come like these people. You cannot come in doubt with divided devotion. If you come in that way, God will turn a deaf ear to you. He will remove His blessing from you just as I removed it from this fig tree. This lesson isn't a promise to perform miracles, per se. It's a promise about relationship. The one who comes to God with a singular-minded devotion to God, even if their faith is weak, even if it's like the grain of a mustard seed, God will hear them. Once again, I think Mark brings out this point uh, more fully. Uh, There, Jesus concludes this lesson by saying this. He says, Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be be yours. And whenever you pray, stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. That's strange. Why is he talking about forgiveness there? It's because the concern here is about relationship. That's why Jesus is talking about forgiveness in this context. He's instructing the disciples concerning how they can maintain their fellowship with God such that He will hear their prayers. So going back to the original question that I posed this morning, how do you avoid the discipline of God? What can you do to prevent this kind of correction where God turns His face away and removes His blessing? It's by repenting, yes. It's by turning, yes. But listen, it's not a turning to dead works. It's a turning to God and to His Christ in faith. This is the obedience that God demands. He wants you to trust Him. He wants you to rest in Him him, and in Him alone. This is important. It doesn't matter how much you conform your life externally to God's commands, if in the end, if all that quote-unquote obedience... If it's not there in humility, dependence, sincere trust and hope in Christ and in Christ alone, then it's not the kind of obedience that God is looking for. 
If that's the kind of offering that you bring to God, a life of mere conformity to His commands, worked out in hopes that He will not punish you, but devoid of sincere, genuine worship and delight as you trust in His grace, then you should not expect for Him to bless you. And by that I don't mean merely some health and wealth idea of blessing. I mean this even spiritually. Listen, if you're caught in a sin that you can't seem to get a handle on, and you've prayed to God and there doesn't seem to be any progress, examine yourself to see if you're truly leaning on Christ in faith to sanctify you, or if you're simply trying to clean yourself up. You might find the answer to your frustration right there. God's power is made perfect through our weakness. He's glorified when we refuse to diversify our portfolio, when we put all our hope for redemption and joy entirely in Him. him. This is the fight that we fight in our sanctification. Not so much to perform, but to trust. That's where the only obedience that's worth giving flows out of. It's out of our joy and trust in God. And make no mistake, it is a fight to rest in Christ. We are much much more comfortable trusting in our own schemes and devices than we are trusting ourselves wholly unto Christ. But we must come, but when we come, when we come to God in this way, humble, dependent, needy, and we're looking to Him alone in order to provide, He's only too happy to bless because in blessing, He not only manifests His love and His grace, but He alone gets all the glory for it. So the question that I would ask you this morning is actually the exact same question that I asked you last week. Where do you seek refuge? What, or rather who, do you trust in? Are you continually seeking Christ in faith? Or is that something you did once in the past, only to now seek refuge in your righteousness? If you can see that you're not trusting in Christ alone, if you're seeking refuge in idols and you're recognizing your error, the first step this morning is to confess it. Listen, don't try to seek refuge by bouncing from one idol to another. And don't try to clean yourself up. Simply turn to Christ and say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Again, He's the one who presents Himself in the temple as the one who can open the eyes of the blind and make the lame to walk. He's the one who has the power to heal your idolatrous heart. You can't do it on your own. He has to do it. So confess it. Seek Him in prayer. Trust entirely in His grace by coming to Him as a sinner and asking Him for His grace and mercy. He loves those prayers. Those are the prayers that glorify Him. If you come to Him in this way, if you come humble, He will hear. Maybe you're saying to yourself this morning, look, I've done that. I've thrown, I've thrown my lot in with Christ. I trust in Him alone, but I'm so scared. I wonder, will He really provide? If so, you don't need to worry. You'll see His provision soon enough. It takes only faith like a mustard seed for God to delight in answering. So even if your faith is weak, don't get discouraged. Persevere in your faith, weak as it may be. For God will soon prove Himself true. Let's go ahead and close this morning by thanking God for His blessing, His provision, and His protection. And let's thank Him for being faithful to provide these things for us even when our faith is weak. Let's pray.